Let's go to Luke chapter number 19 is where we'll be this morning. We are in week 843 of our Luke series. I'm just kidding. Uh, We're almost there. Taking a slow walk through the gospel of Luke, going verse by verse, trying to see all that God has for us here in the story of Jesus. And uh, we'll see what he has for us here in this, this last portion of the gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Catch you up a little bit on where we've been. We, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been spending time in Jericho the past couple of weeks as we've been studying him. We've seen him uh, bring deliverance, life of Zacchaeus, right? The, the greedy tax collector hiding up in the sycamore tree to see Jesus. We see him bring forgiveness, reconciliation, transformation in life of Zacchaeus. We see Jesus then last week begin to teach us the importance of stewarding our lives, that one day we're going to give an account for the way that we lived based on the forgiveness we receive. We want to uh, live a life where Jesus says, we know you've invested well, you've been faithful to do um, God, my will, to build my kingdom during the time that you've been here. And lastly, starting in verse number 28, we're going to see the finally the moment as Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem, in verse 28, he finally gets there. Okay, so Luke 19, verse 28, a text we often study on Palm Sunday, but I'm looking forward to studying some of the crucifixion, triumph entry, resurrection passages uh, outside of the Easter season. Right? It'll be good for us to remind ourselves uh, of these things. Sometimes when we do the same thing every year, we get into those habits, and uh, it looks like we're going to be studying the crucifixion, resurrection at Christmas time this year, which that'll be a great opportunity to be able to do that. Okay, so Luke 19, verse 28, the Bible says, and when he had thus spoken, in other words, he concluded his, uh, his parable about the, the man uh, disputing or dispersing all of the, the gifts. It says, he went before and ascended up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Beth, Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go you into the village over against you, and the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied or a donkey tied, whereon yet never man has sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. They that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose you the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. They cast their garments upon the colt and they set Jesus on it. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They said, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, they're always hanging around, aren't they? Right? Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, master or teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city. and He wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench around thee, and compass thee about, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children with thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. He went to the temple, verse 45, and began to cast out them that were sold therein and them that bought, saying to them, it's written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Again, in our text today, Jesus finally draws near to and enters Jerusalem, which means he has one more week until his death on a Roman cross. This is the beginning of what we refer to as the Passion Week. And so the next four chapters as we study them over the next couple of months are going to detail this one final week of Jesus' life on earth. But today's passage details this entrance into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, if you're new to Scripture, is a really important city, okay? Jerusalem, if we remember, is the city that holds, at this point, the presence of God. It's the city with the temple. This is the center of God's chosen people, God's chosen nation of Israel. This is the promising. This is the capital of all that, okay? So Jerusalem, 
big deal, okay, as he's entering into this promised land, this, this promised city. He enters the capital city, understand, not as a visitor, not as a guest. Jesus enters Jerusalem as the rightful heir to the kingdom of Israel. He comes in as the king, the conquering hero, the promised Messiah, the long-awaited one. But what we're going to see this morning is he doesn't come in the way that you'd expect a new king to come in. He doesn't enter the way you'd expect a new ruler to enter. Someone of his stature, you'd think they'd come into the city a little bit of a different way. Maybe you're in the room and you have a background in marketing. Maybe you, you have a marketing degree or you work in marketing or you took a marketing degree in college or you watched an ad on YouTube. Okay, so we all have some understanding of what marketing is. If you took a marketing class or understand a little bit about it, you probably understand most of us understand the universal goal in marketing is to make yourself or your product attractive to the public, right? To make your product as, as attractive as possible to possible consumers. You want to create an image that's desirable, right? That makes people want to buy your product or makes you want to business with you. They, they want to make yourself kind of stand out, right? You want to make yourself different from the competition because there's, there's other people that are trying to, you know, get, get the market share, right? And so one marketing strategy that we often see employed is to make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad. Right? Maybe you can remember some marketing strategies that included that. I remember uh, growing up, if you're from my generation, the, the Coke Wars. You guys remember the, the Coke versus Pepsi Wars? And they'd have all these commercials of, of kind of trashing the other soda. Uh, if you drank Pepsi, you were cool. If you drank Coke, you were a loser, right? Which is the kind of concept of, of the whole ad. It was kind of weird, but it's one of the strategies of marketing, right? I'm going to make myself look better by trashing or, or downplaying my opponent, make your competition look bad. So I look good. So I've never seen that. Well, turn on the news and follow the political campaign, okay? Uh, it's not about making yourself look good anymore. It's about making the other person look bad, right? I mean, the competition look bad, so you look better. And so as we come to this passage, reading today's passage, I was kind of reflecting on it this past week, I came to this conclusion. Jesus had a lot of good people around him. We're going to learn about the disciples, continue to learn about the disciples. But Jesus had to have the worst marketing team in history. In the history of the world, there's never been anyone like Jesus. He's God incarnate. He's, he's the eternal king. He's the one who everyone who, who truly understands who he is is going to bow their knee. They're going to worship him. He's the creator. He's, he's defied natural laws with miracles and with his power. He's healed the blind and the lame. He's, he's literally brought dead people back to life. Like, it seems like a relatively simple concept to make this guy look good, right? He fed thousands of people in the middle of nowhere with a lunchable right he, he's, he's calmed a storm and now he comes into the capital city and instead of pomp and circumstance and celebration and get the best steed right for me to ride into the city on instead of all that he he comes in on a donkey without a real saddle not only that he comes with tears in his eyes he doesn't come patting himself on the back and celebrating who he is. He comes into the city of Jerusalem weeping. And then he goes into the very city of the city, center of the city, where all the activity is, where all of the excitement's going on, and he causes a scene. So he comes in on a donkey, crying, goes to the center of the city where all the populace is, where the opportunity for him to declare who he is, this is your chance, Jesus, get up and preach. The, you know that Sermon on the Mount one? That was good. Do that one here, right? This is your chance, Jesus. Everyone's going to be there. The crowd's going to be huge. Give your best stuff. And what does he do? He goes in there and flips tables, drives people out, causes a commotion. So either he has the worst marketing team in history, or he's showing us something about himself. Or he's teaching us something here that we need to pay attention to. Maybe something about his kingdom. That his kingdom isn't just about displays of power and influence. That the kingdom of God is to be marked by humility, sacrifice. Maybe instead of worldly gain, the kingdom of God is to be marked by service. Maybe instead of being exclusive to the powerful, the kingdom of God is meant to prioritize the weak and the outcast and the foreigner. Jesus could have come in and all of these different ways. He could have come in in celebration and pomp and circumstance. He could have come in with an army. He could have come in with angels and freaked everybody out. He could have spoken 
and decimated the world's most powerful kingdom, but he didn't do any of it. He chose not to enter in these ways. And it's important for us to see as his followers, as his people, what that means for us. What else things we can apply and learn from the way that he entered? What does that mean? What does that teach us about how we should conduct ourselves? About how we should uh, see are the values in this world? We live in a power-seeking, influence-seeking, consumeristic, capitalistic meritocracy. Okay, Long live the USA. That's where we live, right? It's, it's power-seeking. It's, it's all about our own good. It's about, you know, if you do your best, you're going to move forward, right? It's a meritocracy. It is as easy as breathing to adopt those values to your spiritual life. And without even noticing, we, we think, I want to stand out. I want people to admire me. Uh, I want to show everybody else that, that I'm the best, right? I want to prove myself. I want to you know, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And it, if we're honest, it makes sense. It makes sense we want to live in a way that we're competing against each other because we live in a world with limited resources. We live in a world where people have limited attention, limited time. When things are limited, when things are scarce, there fundamentally has to be a competition. I've noticed this in our own house. We're we're right in that line of do we buy one large pizza or two medium pizzas, right? We're in that size dynamic of our family right now. Uh, This is what I find. The less pizza I buy, the more my kids eat. There's like this, there's like there's only four pieces left. So I've got to put six on my plate to make sure that I get the most, right? When there's three or four pizzas, they eat one piece and they're fine, right? There's something about the scarcity, there's something about the limited amount that drives that competition, right? That drives that feeling of I've got to get mine. I've got to take care of what I need, right? It's very natural for us in a world where we have limited time, limited resources to compete with one another, for influence, for power, for notoriety. But the kingdom of God is not one of lack. It's not one that is lacking in resources or time. Jesus shows this kingdom is completely different. Jesus' kingdom is eternal. It's abundant. It's not about scarcity. It's not about lacking. His kingdom is one of flourishing. And so competition in this way and, and battle for power, influence, or self-seeking, those things are incompatible with the kingdom of God. So what Jesus does here is he enters into this kingdom. He enters into a worldly kingdom, a current kingdom, a temporal kingdom. And he enters in in such a way that his eyes are on the coming kingdom. He's not just looking at brick and mortar. He's not just looking at flesh and bone. He's looking at what's to come. He doesn't need to market himself by the rules of this kingdom. Because he's accomplishing a work for the next one. He's not so consumed with making sure everyone knows, everyone sees and everyone's impressed by him. He, he's trying to accomplish his mission. And by looking at Jesus, we learn that we're to do the same thing. As we live in this world, we need to have our eyes on the next one. As we're present in a temporal society, in a temporal kingdom, we live for the coming kingdom. We can be different. We can. We can be different. We can live for the next world while we participate in this one. Okay? So that's my hope for us this morning, that we would look at the example here of our king as we look to how to live in this world, that our values will be shaped by him and by looking at his kingdom. So what I'm going to do is uh, our points lay out a little bit differently. Uh, I tried to make it a sentence. If you're a grammar person, it's probably a run-on, okay? But the three points today work together to make a sentence, and uh, we'll learn a little bit about our king as we make our way through it. Okay, the first phrase here of our run-on is this, okay? The king of all creation comes humbly. The king of all creation comes humbly. Let's go back to verse number 28. When Jesus had said this, he went before and ascended up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount called Olives. He sent two of his disciples. And he told them, go into the village against you. And when you enter, you'll find a donkey, a colt tied there. Whereon yet never man sat. First, first ride. <laughs> Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone would ask you, why do you lose him? This will you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. Look at the details Jesus is giving us here. There's a lot going on here in this passage. I want to kind of break it down little by little. Everything that's going on here kind of fits into two main themes. There's hints here at who Jesus is, his identity as the Savior, as the Messiah. And there's also this picture of how he's entering the city, okay? So let's first look at these, these hints to who Jesus is. Jesus says, he has power. Jesus shows his sovereignty. 
by telling his disciples, go into the city, go find a, a colt, a donkey. He tells them exactly where to go. It's like he said, turn right here, turn left there, you'll find a colt tied against the side of the road there. He tells them the state of the colt. This is a colt, this is a donkey that's never been ridden on before, right? This is a new donkey, okay, this is his, his first trip, right? So he says where the donkey is, he says the condition of the donkey. Then he tells them, someone's going to ask you a question, why are you stealing my donkey, okay? And this is how you respond to that question. He's showing his sovereignty. He's showing his knowledge, right? This is where to go. This is what it looks like. This is what they're going to say. This is what you're going to say, right? He's showing who Jesus is. This is how to answer that question. It's a display of Jesus' foreknowledge. It's a display of Jesus' power over everything just by knowing all this information. Next, once they get the cult to him, what happens? The text says they lift Jesus up onto the cult. They literally exalt Jesus. They lift him into the air onto the donkey. They're exalting him as the rightful king. And when they lift him up, they take their, their outer garments, their cloaks, and they lay them over top of the donkey so that Jesus wouldn't bear the embarrassment or shame of riding this donkey bareback, which would have been uh, disrespectful in their culture. And then as the donkey begins to move, they take the rest of their clothes, the rest of their garments, and they spread them on the ground as if to say, the donkey that you're riding on, Jesus, it, it shouldn't touch the ground. You're, you're too worthy. You're too exalted. So we're going to spread our clothes on the ground, literally a first century red carpet treatment, okay? And it's all in honor of Jesus. And then they begin to sing. We've always sang, Christians, if you're new and you're like, People sing a lot. This is been, we're a singing people. This is this is who we've been from the very beginning. Look at what they begin to sing in verse thirty-eight. Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now that's a beautiful phrase, but it's also a quote from the book of Psalms, Psalm one eighteen. And in that Psalm, Psalm one eighteen, they are looking forward to a future King. Psalm one eighteen is a prophecy. And as they begin to sing and to chant, "Blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord." peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are declaring, everyone in that area would have known what they're declaring. They're saying, this is that king. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the one that we've long been waiting for. Now, we also see the Pharisees are there, and they're aware of what these guys are singing. That's why they get upset. They're not just upset. They look at this king who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Uh, you guys remember when Burger King used to have the crowns? I don't know if they still do or not. Uh, I try not to frequent Burger King as often as I used to. But, you know, uh, Burger King had the crowns, and you have to kind of pretend you're king as you walk around and say, I'd like my burger this way because I'm the king, right? Uh, nobody gets mad at that. It was like nobody's yelling at seven-year-old kids, you're not the king. Take that off. You're not the king. No one's being a jerk like that, right? Because there's no threat there, right? Let the kid think he's the king, right? Like you're a, you're a mean man if you're removing this kid's royalty, the Burger King, right? So why do the Pharisees get upset? This guy's riding a donkey. They're saying, king, king, king. Why does that bother them? It bothers them because they're, they're quoting the 118th Psalm. They're not just saying, hey, look at our little pretend king. No, they're saying this is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. And they get upset. And they tell Jesus, master or teacher, tell your disciples, rebuke your disciples. You know what they're saying? Jesus, they're saying you're the Messiah. They're saying you're the king. And if you notice up until this point in Luke, Jesus has been a little bit coy at times with this stuff. He hasn't just been walking around saying, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm Messiah, I'm the Messiah. Like, he hasn't been doing that. He's been relatively reserved. This is a moment where they come to him and say, you need to tell these guys to shut up. You need to tell them to be quiet because they're blaspheming by calling you the king. They, they know exactly what's going on, these Pharisees do. Look at what Jesus replies. I love this. He says, if I told them to be quiet, the stones around us would cry out in worship. All throughout the Old Testament, there are illustrations and allusions of creation worshiping the Lord, of the heavens declaring the glory of God, the mountains crying out the beauty of the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament, we see them singing the praise of their creator, the book of Isaiah, the mountains, again, cry out to God. All throughout the Psalms, creation sings the praises of our creator. So Jesus right here is saying, hey, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks that are around us will begin to praise and testify to who I am. This is Jesus saying they are correct in quoting the 118th Psalm about me. 
Because if their worship was stopped, creation around it would worship its creator. Points us to Colossians chapter number one, doesn't it? For by him and from him do all things consist, that Jesus is the original creator. The power of the word of God goes forward. Their creator is walking by and the rocks would praise him. And you zoom out a little bit. This puts Jesus right in the seat of the Messiah. But what normally doesn't really jump off the page to us, whatever that time that Jesus is again writing himself into prophecy, in, when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. I put there in your outline, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is a prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto you. He is just. This king comes having great salvation. He comes lowly, riding upon a donkey, upon a colt, full of an ass, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So not only is this whole thing about Jesus coming in humility, riding on this colt, riding on this donkey, this whole scene is a direct fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy we see from Zechariah. So we have to recognize here is a couple things. We need to understand that what is on display, the person who is sitting on the seat of this donkey is nothing less, no one less than the creator of the universe. That is who is entering into Jerusalem. The creator of this city is entering in through the gates of the city. The rightful heir to the throne of this kingdom is entering into the capital city. This promised people, he was the one who made them the promised people. This is the Lord and he's coming as the reigning and conquering king. But not only that, he's coming to a city that is filled with problems. Filled with problems. Jerusalem's a mess. It's a mess. It's currently occupied by an oppressive enemy in the Romans. It's led, its people are led by high priests and Pharisees who are corrupt and have taken advantage of the people. They're using their religious position to profit themselves and to care of themselves. So what you have here is the king not just entering into the city humbly. You see the king entering into the city to make things right. He's going to fix some things. He's coming to make things right. And normally in these types of situations, kings don't establish themselves quietly. Kings don't establish themselves humbly. What do they do? They strut their stuff. They show their power. They come in with swagger and intimidation. I've got a picture here of we just saw the coronation in England happen, right? What is, what, how do they enter? Let me put that first picture up, Stacy. Pomp and circumstance, right? I'm going to gold-plated chariot, biggest horses I can find. I'm going to make these guys dress up in funny costumes, right? Uh, no, there's, there's, there's a celebration of their power, their influence, right? Because I'm establishing myself as the new monarch of this kingdom. This is my power. These are those who report to me. This is the way that I'm going to enter. We're going to display our power. Our, our uh, inauguration of our presidents um look a little bit different they're not i always feel like everyone else's country is so fun and ours this is this looks like a funeral possession doesn't it like yay us right but we could we could have we could do with a little more red right a little more 1776 right no but um we enter in with celebration the show of display a show of power right we don't have chariots we have bulletproof cadillacs we come in to establish this is who we are. You have, you have, we do this not just politically. You just at a baseball game, right? You go to a baseball game, what do they do? They get their music, right? Before each player comes out, they get to select the song they're going to use to intimidate the, the opponent. Uh, boxers, right? My favorite movies is Rocky. If you don't like Rocky, I don't really know who you are, all right? So if you don't like Rocky, but how do they enter, right? They enter with pomp and circumstance, right? Apollo Creed, yeah, my guy. Right? You enter showing off your power, showing off your strength. Patting yourself on the back. Give me your own accolades. Tell me how many, what's your record? How many championships do you own? Right? That's how we enter the ring. That's how we enter in these kind of scenarios. Jesus, very different, isn't he? There's no big marketing ploy. We do this on an individual level, too. I don't know if you guys realize that. We strut our stuff. We want to establish our dominance. We want to establish our status. We want to intimidate. We want to make sure people know that we're here. And Jesus is legitimately the most powerful person who has or ever will live. 
And that posture isn't found anywhere near Jesus. That self-aggrandizing, that, that posturing for power, leadership, or significance, that's not how we see him entering Jerusalem. He chooses not to ride on a, on a steed, right? We went this past week, uh, took my kids up to the fair in Springfield, and they had the, the, what are the giant horses called? Clydesdales, right? I mean, my soul. Like, I don't even know what you do. Like, humongous, right? Get Jesus one of those, guys. Like, like go steal him from the Budweiser guy and give him to Jesus, right? Like, he needs a better animal here. We need to be more impressive, right? He's riding a donkey. You know the donkeys were at the fair than the petting zoo? They weren't pulling the chariot. But Jesus, what is he, coming on this donkey? No foot soldiers. No flyovers. No display of power. And the donkey he's riding on doesn't even have a saddle. He's not showing, in the, showing up in the bulletproof Cadillac. He shows up on a scooter. The king of all creation comes in with humility. Humbly. Jesus doesn't play the same game, game that the world plays. He's not here to prove himself. He's not here to show what he can do. What does that mean for us? Well, we could really oversimplify the application and say, Jesus rode on a donkey, so what car do you drive? Right? Drive a Toyota. I drive, we have to figure out the most humble of vehicles, which obviously we know is some kind of a Ford. We know that right down the chain. My dad was a GM guy. but I'm, yeah. well, we got to figure out what car I'm supposed to drive. I think we miss it. Jesus' lead step into this city is one of humility. What is humility? Humility is freedom from pride and arrogance. That's what humility is. We can complicate it a lot of different ways. It's ultimately freedom from pride and arrogance. I like that phrase, freedom. Because pride and arrogance, it's enslaving. You ever found yourself when you're really struggling with pride, arrogance? You're, you're trapped, man. It's really tough to get out of that. It enslaves us. And Jesus is here to set us free from that. Jesus here has a work to accomplish, but he has nothing to prove. He has a work to accomplish, but nothing to prove. His eyes are on the coming kingdom. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And a week later, he's going to be walking out of Jerusalem carrying a Roman cross on his back. He has a work to prove. Sorry, he has a work to accomplish, but nothing to prove. Let me ask you this. What would your look, life look like if you had nothing to prove? How would you relate differently to your family members? How would you speak differently to coworkers if you had nothing to prove? How'd that change the way we live? How would it change the way in which we interact with others, we interact with the world? What if we had nothing to prove? Would that take the pressure off you as a student? Would it take pressure off you as a parent? Would it change the way you view your singleness? How would that change the way that you treat your spouse? If you had nothing to prove, would it change the way you spent your money? Would it change the way that you treat people at work or maybe the people that work for you? you had nothing to prove? Would it change how you post on social media if you had nothing to prove? For me in my life, and in the very limited amount of time that I've spent in my life having nothing to prove, those moments are breaths of fresh air. They are. That's why I like that phrase, the freedom from pride and arrogance. In those limited times where I feel like, genuinely, I have nothing to prove, I worry far less about what other people think of me, I worry less about being right about everything. I worry less about chasing that material thing in our lives that promises comfort or status or adventure. What Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago, church, what Jesus did on that cross 2,000 years ago means that you and I as followers of Jesus, you and I as Christians forgiven by Jesus, we have nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. We are adopted children of God, joint heirs to the throne of God with Jesus, which means there is no lack, there is no scarcity. We're not fighting over pieces of pizza. In the kingdom of God, there's abundance. We, we have a future kingdom that will be more, the Bible says, than our eyes can even see, more than our ears have ever heard, more than we, our minds can ever conceive or imagine. We have nothing to prove. Now, we have a work to do. We saw that last week, for sure. We have a work to do, and I have nothing to prove. My prayer for us this morning is we can live like that. I'll ride in on a donkey. 
We can ride in. We, we can live however humbly that we need to live. But I want to have that freedom from pride, that freedom from arrogance. Let's move forward in our run-on sentence, okay? So Jesus came the, as the creator of the world, enters into the kingdom humbly. We also see him entering into the city, and it's a city that's full of his enemies. That's our second point, okay? He enters humbly into a city full of his enemies. Remember, this is the city that's going to execute him a week later. That's the gates of the city that he's entering into. That, that's Jerusalem, okay? A city full of his enemies. They're going to execute him. And he doesn't react the way that we might think he would react. Again, look with me, verses 41 to 44. The Bible says, when Jesus was come near, he beheld the city, this city full of his enemies, this city ruled by those who want to ultimately crucify him. How does he, how does he react? He weeps over it. Saying, if you had known, even thou, at least in this day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench around you, and compass thee, and keep thee in on every side, and they will lay even with the ground, and thy children within thee. They shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now, this second part of our sentence here, we see him entering into a city full of his enemies, and he weeps over the city. And he desires peace for his enemies. Now, this passage can be a little bit confusing. So let me, let me set the table for us historically what's happening here, okay? We need to recognize that Jesus is riding towards those who will end up executing him. They're going to hang him on the cross. The same people that are on, on Palm Sunday shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, on Friday are shouting, crucify, crucify, okay? So that's the same city, the same group of people. This is the very same people who've been challenging his ministry, the Pharisees, for the last three years of his life. They've been trying to trap him. The end of our passage says they're trying to accuse him, trying to find fault in him. They're trying to establish an authority over him at every turn. These are the people. These are the people that Jesus sees. But what he sees is not just the people. He sees their ultimate end. He sees what's going to happen to these people. He doesn't just see their current condition. He sees the end of their current condition. And he says the days are coming when your enemies are going to set up a barricade around you. The days are coming, Jerusalem, where they're going to dig a trench around the city, and they're going to surround you and trap you within it, and the whole city's going to come down on top of itself with you and your children within it. It's a pressing prophecy, but it's a true prophecy. Fast forward about 40 years after this, 70 AD, the exact same week, Passover week, what Jesus says here comes true. Right there on the ground where he's walking. General Titus surrounds Jerusalem from the Roman rulers, lays siege Jerusalem, overtakes and destroys Jerusalem, burns Jerusalem to the ground. The Roman emperor said, I wanted Jerusalem to look like no one had ever been there. I want it completely destroyed. Literally not any stone on top of another stone, completely destroyed. Jesus sees this as he's entering into Jerusalem and he foretells this. He says, this is what's gonna happen. Now I have a question. If you had an enemy and you knew they were going to be defeated, how would that make you feel? I mean, I'd be rubbing that in, right? I, I talk a lot about football. I care far too much about it, right? But I'm a big Michigan football fan. Last night, Ohio State was playing. If you know anything about football, we don't like them very much, okay? And they really, really, really almost lost. So close to losing. And it would have been great whatever team lost last night in that game. But I was there. I was watching them about to lose, and such joy filled my soul. I mean, these guys are, I mean, they weren't just losing, they were losing in hilarious ways. Like, they were just making really bad decisions, and it, it just, it gave me so much joy and so much pleasure. I loved every second of it. They figured out a way to not lose the game and made me sad again. But, you know, when our enemies go down, what our natural response is, I want to rub it in their faces, right? These guys that have been opposing me at every turn, these guys that say I'm not worthy of the titles, uh, the ones that I made, the one that I've created, like, those guys are going to lose. Like, wouldn't Jesus want to just savor that for a moment and enjoy that for a second? That he sees what's going to happen to them, what's going to happen to their families? He doesn't rub it in, he doesn't dunk on them, he doesn't spike the ball in the end zone. We throw a party, don't we? We celebrate our wins. But these people who rejected and killed Jesus, hung him on a cross, they're going to meet this terrible but just end, but we don't see Jesus celebrating it. We see him weeping over it. He's weeping over the destruction that's coming. 
what's going on here? I think there's a couple things important for us to understand. I think the first is, just because Jesus is an enemy to many people does not mean that people are Jesus' enemies. Okay, let me explain that. There's a lot of people in our world that see Jesus as an enemy. They're opposed to him. Right? They, want, they want to stop his truth. They want, they want to stand against him. But there is no person, no person who Jesus doesn't desire to come to him. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that for by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him in Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any of us would perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so these people that are in this city, they have declared themselves they declare Jesus as their enemy, but they're his creation. And he's not longing for them to perish. Secondly, I think we see that their ultimate fate is worse than what's going to happen in 70 AD. Yeah, this is going to be terrible, what takes place. This devastating war with an opponent that they cannot win against. That has nothing compared to them setting themselves up as enemies to God. Jesus is the only way for them to be reconciled to God, and they're missing it. That's what he says. You're missing the hour of your visitation. You're missing your moment to come to faith and trust. You're missing your moment to find peace. This, this is the only way for you to be able to reconcile to God. But you reject that, you're going to face something far worse than what the Romans can do. Because they don't recognize who's visiting them. They don't recognize who Jesus is. They're missing out on peace. It's peace in their earthly circumstances, for sure. But it's ultimately peace with their God. Follow me here. Jesus is going to set up a second kingdom. Jesus is not coming to reestablish Israel as an earthly kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's coming to establish a spiritual kingdom, right? So he is changing what the kingdom looks like from the old Jerusalem to the new Jerusalem, where the presence of God used to be in a physical temple. Now the presence of God goes with every single follower of Jesus everywhere. The Holy Spirit is within us. So what we need to know here and what we should be listening to and know is that the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is no longer tied to the land they're standing on. It's no longer tied to the temple mount. It's no longer tied to the building of the temple. Because in 70 AD, that's going to be destroyed. The place where their God dwelt will be destroyed. And the events that led up to that temple being destroyed are ultimately the Jewish people trying to rise up against Rome and reestablish Jerusalem as their capital and sovereignty from Rome. Basically, they tried to make a political kingdom when Jesus says the kingdom's never about being political. And I can't help but think if they would have understood that, if they would have understood what Jesus was saying, would they have not done that? Would they have chosen to see their kingdom as spiritual. They've understood that the, the temple is now within us through Jesus, and we don't have to have this, this, temp, this, this, this temporary kingdom. And maybe, who knows? Maybe they don't be able to keep their earthly kingdom. What's happening here is like a double curse on Jerusalem. The first is them not recognizing who Jesus is, which leads to a terrible physical death through the Romans. But secondly, more importantly, it's a spiritual death. It's a separation from the creator. I love that phrasing that he's visiting with them. You're missing the visitation. You're missing the moment when your creator is here with you. Friends, seeing Jesus for who he is, that would have brought them temporal peace. It would have brought them eternal peace. So when you understand that, you kind of get why Jesus is weeping. They're missing it. And there will be great destruction because they're missing it. He's weeping for those who he created, who he loved, who he desired to come to repentance. And he's watching them refuse. He's watching them harden their necks. He's watching them stiffen their spines against Jesus. They missed the whole thing. And so because of this, Jesus does not ride into Jerusalem rejoicing. He rides in mourning. I want to press this into us just for a couple ways that we can kind of apply this. I think, first of all, is we should take on the compassion of Jesus. We should be compassionate people as we see our compassionate Savior. We need to recognize that at one point we all set ourselves up as enemies of God. We all have done that through our sinfulness and selfish decisions. We've all set ourselves up as his enemies. And we need to recognize that Jesus now does not look at us as enemies, but looks on us as his children with compassion. So this morning, no matter what your history is, no matter what your past behavior is, no matter what your current behavior is, 
you can receive the compassion of Jesus. And this morning, we want you to know that he looks on you, he created you, he looks on you with love and a desire for you to come to know him, to find forgiveness. And Christian, we need to share that message, share the compassion of Jesus. When you look out on the world, you turn on the news, don't just see this contempt look come across your face. Look in the world with compassion and love. Look at every sinner as someone who has an opportunity to repent. As a chance for someone to come to faith in Jesus. Which kind of brings me to my second application. We want to take out the compassion of Jesus. We also want to resist the propensity in our hearts to create enemies. Okay? I want to sit in this just for a second. Our world continues to fracture smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay? We, we make up enemies that we then gather our army with. We kind of attack. And my worry is that even in the church, that can happen. We make enemies out of individuals or groups of people. But the reality is what we learn from the writings of Jesus, from the writings of the New Testament, is that we have no enemies, church, that have flesh and bone. We have no enemies that have flesh. What does the Bible say? Our enemies are not flesh and blood. They're the rulers and principalities of this world. They're sin, Satan, and death. Those are our enemies. So when we go out into a workplace, your coworker is not your enemy. Even the one that always is kicking your chair late in, maybe in class, guys, or the one that's always bothering you, or the one that's always trying to finagle their way into a pro- they're not our enemies. And then number three, trust in Jesus, the temporal and the eternal. What does it mean that we can trust Jesus in the good and the mundane? It means that we can know that he's ultimately got a plan for good. What does that mean? Verse 45. I said number three. That's my third application. I see your very confused faces, all right? We're not there to number three, number three yet, so hold your horses. The reason we can trust in Jesus in our life today and tomorrow and eternity, that doesn't mean that our life is going to be like smooth sailing. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be up and to the right on a graph for the rest of your life. It's not always going to work that way, Okay. What it does mean is I can trust him in the good and the bad and the mundane, the challenging, the devastating. That we can know when we find ourselves in the pits of despair that Jesus still works all things for our good. To rejoice in those moments, all right? So number three, legitimately, all right? Number three, our conclusion of our sentence. The creator comes into the city humbly. It's a city full of his enemies. And what is he doing? He's seeking the worship of all above all. Verse 45. He went into the temple, began to cast out them that were selling therein, and then that bought, saying to them, it's written, Jesus is a big fan of quoting scripture, it's written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He taught daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. They could not find what they might do, for the people were very timid to hear him. This passage is much more drawn out in some of the other gospels. We see Jesus flipping over tables and driving out the money changers with a whip. We get a kind of a, just a quick uh, allusion to it this morning. What is Jesus doing as he enters the temple, as he's flipping over these tables, he's driving out the money changers? What's he doing? He is seeking the worship of all above all. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He goes straight to the temple. This is literally the, the capital of the capital, okay? He's entering into the Times Square of Jerusalem, okay? He's entering into the capital of the capital. He's there in the very middle the, during the Passover season, Jerusalem swells about four times its normal size, and the temple would have been the very center of all that. So people everywhere. This is, this is the town square, okay? This is where everything is happening, and Jesus goes straight there, straight there, and makes a big scene. The Gospel of Luke's, again, description is pretty benign. We see from the other Gospels, it's a little more intense. As Jesus goes in, it seems like he throws a fit, doesn't it? flipping over tables, driving people out with a whip. He's got this anger against those. What's happening here? Well, why is Jesus causing this scene? I mean, he's coming in as this conquering hero. Don't you want to unite people, Jesus? Right, come on in and, yeah, preach that great sermon or come in and heal somebody. What if he healed somebody in the temple? Like with the Passover, all these people around? Like they would have been, they would have been awesome. Jesus, what are you flipping over tables for, right? This is not the way to move forward. Why are you alienating people like that, Jesus? Well, we get some clues in the text, in the context here. First, in the text, Jesus quotes two Old Testament prophets back to back. 
we see quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah in Jesus' words here. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, we see a prophecy or, or a, a promise. We see that the house of God shall be called a house of prayer for all people. A house of prayer for all people. All nations. Some of your Bibles might say Isaiah 56, verse 7. So remember that. Bookmark that. That's going to be important, okay? And the next one he quotes, not just that I be a house of prayer. He says, you have made it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. That's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Says, is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Now, that prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 7 is actually a part of a bigger sermon that Jeremiah is giving. And, and during the sermon, Jeremiah is standing in the temple. He is standing in the very spot, the entryway to the temple where Jesus is now flipping over tables. And Jeremiah is condemning the people for oppressing the sojourner, for oppressing the fatherless, for oppressing the widow, for, for shedding innocent blood in the temple. And going throughout that sermon, if you read it, Jeremiah chapter 7, he is continually saying God is going to exile you. He's going to send you away. He's going to take you away from his presence because you're taking advantage of people in the name of God. You're manipulating people, and you're blaming me for it. So if we go from Jeremiah's day back into Jesus' day, Jesus comes in, he walks in the temple, and he sees it's basically become a market. The place that was supposed to be really focused on prayer and, and, and inviting the, the lost one to come and find a relationship with their creator it has now become a place for people to make a buck. And basically there would be people there that were, they'd have things, stalls set up for you to come buy an animal for the sacrifice. Or they'd have an opportunity for you to be able to exchange currency, your currency for temple currency and pay the temple tax. Now, that's not necessarily bad in of itself except for a couple different things we understand from the context. One, they're not just selling things, they're taking advantage of people. They're manipulating people, especially of those who have little. Those who can't bring their own animals to the temple for a sacrifice. They're, they're upcharging, okay? They bought that pigeon for three, they're selling it for 30 to the poor person, okay? They're, they're taking advantage of those. And then also, they're likely profiting from it because they're taking advantage of people, and they've set up in what's called the court of the Gentiles, Okay, which is the outer court of the temple. They, they set up in this court of Gentiles, which would have been where non-Jews could come and worship God. Remember that Isaiah verse we just quoted for, that this would be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. The Jews have now set themselves up in a way where they're not only taking advantage of the poor, they're taking advantage of the foreigner. The court of the Gentiles where all those nations, all those people could come and be able to worship God. And so the business and the busyness that was happening in the court of the Gentiles is not allowing it to be a house of prayer, and it was restricting the mission of God to take the truth of who God is to the world. They're taking advantage of people like Jeremiah, and they're not allowing it to be a house of prayer like Isaiah tells us it's supposed to be. And so this is a really poignant moment in the life of Jesus, because the presence of God for hundreds of years has resided in this temple. This is where they've come to worship. This is where God has dwelled. Now, the embodied presence of God. We know that from the writer of Hebrews. That's what Jesus is, right? He is the embodied presence of God, is in the temple. He's in the place where they've all been coming to worship God, and now he's there, and he is driving those out who are restricting the worship of that God. Jesus here is bad news for those who are going to try and take the religious system and manipulate it for their own good, manipulate it for their own pocketbooks, manipulate it for their own power, and he is good news for those who are truly seeking to worship him. Jesus is about to accomplish a work on the cross that breaks down the dividing wall between God and his people. That veil in the temple is about to be torn from top to bottom as Jesus dies on the cross, allowing access to God for an everyday man. This temple is really no longer going to be needed. There'll be no restriction in worship that can be profited off of anymore. Jesus is about to proverbially and completely turn the money changers' tables over forever. This industry that they've set up, it's a temporary industry because the presence of God isn't going to dwell in this temple any longer. It's going to dwell in the hearts of people. So as I think about how we can kind of land this plane for us today, I can't help but think about how Jesus is so divisive yet so inclusive. He's divisive. His people in our day, man, they, they just like that. They're going to declare Jesus as an enemy. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. He tells me what to do, where to go, how to act. I don't want anything to do with that. They'll declare Jesus. As their enemy. On the other hand, there's no more inclusive thing 
in the world than the good news of Jesus. That every man, every woman, every child, every ethnicity, every social and economic status and background, good, bad, indifferent, religious, rebel, rule follower, all of us have the same access to the creator of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. And so our goal as followers of Jesus should be putting Jesus in front of everyone and putting him in front of everyone in this way where they see the true Jesus and they understand the radical inclusiveness of Jesus. So I think our job as followers of Christ is to make sure that the Jesus that we're presenting is actually the Jesus of Scripture. Because people will reject Jesus. I just want to make sure they're rejecting him. And they're not just rejecting my version of him. That as I declare who Jesus is, as I show people who Jesus is, I want to make sure they're rejecting him, not just some other barrier that I've set up. I wonder what tables Jesus would overturn in my life. Maybe it's uh, my particular theological bent, right? Which are all right, obviously. Um, Maybe it's our thoughts on end times or how we structure leadership. Maybe it's how we view our money. There's just some things that we're setting up as a barrier to people. And I hate to miss that this is an economic thing here. Okay, this is disconnected to our money. Because we are, we are this morning in a very steep capitalistic kind of society. But have we allowed that money to become a barrier between people and Jesus? Do we make the mistake of equating faithfulness to Jesus with financial prosperity? Do we make the poor among us feel less than? Do we keep our faith and our business separate? Or does Jesus rule all of it? Do we give our pursuit of money, pursuit of success, the top priority in our lives, and Jesus the leftovers? I think we need to evaluate our lives and see, do I truly present Jesus to the world the way for who he actually is? Let me close with this. As followers of Jesus, we live for a different kingdom. Okay? That's been the theme of the last two or three chapters. Right? The kingdom of God. We live for a different kingdom. A kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that I cannot see with my eyes at this point, a kingdom that also does not suffer the same limitations and deficiencies of the kingdoms of this world. That we have a future and a victory that's already been preserved for us. There is no lacking in the kingdom of God. There's no need for me to compete and strive and prove myself in this world. We have nothing to prove because of the kingdom that we live for. We have no earthly enemies because of the kingdom that we live for. We offer Jesus to this world with no strings attached. And so my hope as we enter into this Passion Week discussion of this next several months, that we enter it with understanding that I want to be a person and a people that anticipates the coming kingdom with everything that I give myself to, with all the focus of my mind, my heart, and my attention, that I'd live reflecting the compassionate, humble heart of Jesus, and I'll do everything in my power to present the real Jesus to those that I come into contact with. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you are our conquering hero. You are